The capital city of Azerbaijan is called Baku. That city is the center of an oil battle between Russia, Azerbaijan, and certain Middle Eastern countries. Baku has so much oil that the ancient religion, Zoroastrianism, the worship of fire, began in this area because the oil, lying close to the surface, would on occasion spontaneously combust. And ancient people began to worship fire. It was a part of the Ottoman Empire, and so is Turkic-speaking. But also it was a part of the Russian Empire, and so at least... To some degree, it is also Russian-speaking. It is nominally Muslim. Russian Baptists emigrating to Baku to work in the oil industry set up churches in the capital city and elsewhere in the country and attempted from time to time to reach out to Azerbaijanis. An Azerbaijani man was converted in the 1980s. At the time, he was one among an estimated 50 Azerbaijani Christians worldwide out of a total resident population of slightly under 10 million. He worshipped in the Russian Baptist Church. And on Sunday, a man from Africa visited the church. He noticed the Azerbaijani man, a different complexion to Russians, right there in the congregation. And after the service, he took him to one side and talked to him. He said, God showed me your face in a dream and told me to come here to train you to be a pastor. Duly so trained, no doubt by the Russian pastors at the Baptist church as well, the Azerbaijani man began his apprenticeship. And once he was ready to preach, he made a seismic decision. He was not going to preach in Russian. He was going to preach in the native tongue of his people, Aziri. To say the church rapidly grew would be like saying that Michael Jordan was a fairly good basketball player. The growth was astonishing. In a few years, hundreds of Aziri men and women were putting their faith in Christ, joining the church, taking the message of the gospel to the city and to the country. I went to this church one Sunday to discover that Some of these recent converts had been thrown in prison the week before for confessing Christ in this nominal Muslim country. The authorities had then let them go after a few days and they were back in church that following week. And this week, the church rejoicing in a bubble of excitement, not only had they returned but they had brought some of their fellow prisoners with them to hear the gospel too.
do you think of when you think of church? A Christian leader called David Watson once visited a church. He met an old guy who had been there a lifetime. Watson said to him, you must have seen a lot of change. And the caretaker replied, yes, and I opposed all of them. (laughs) This morning, I want us to have unbreakable confidence in God's purpose to change the world through us because of the Spirit of Christ in us. We can have unbreakable confidence in God's purpose to change the world through us because of the Spirit of Christ in us. First, God's purpose to change the world through us. Second, the Spirit of Christ in us. First, God's purpose to change the world through us. Now, this verse is one key part of God's manual to change the world. And Paul actually summarizes this reason for writing the whole letter in Romans chapter 15 and verse 15. If you've got a Bible open, it will help you. And uh, let me read from that chapter 15, verse 15. Paul says, I have written to you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace of God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so, Paul is writing Romans to give a bold reminder of the gospel of God for the sake of all nations. It's a manual to change the world. You see, the church at Rome was in a strategic location for the spread of the gospel throughout the world. Rome was the center of the ancient empire. It was New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. joined into one mega center of empire. All roads, it was said, led to Rome. One scholar described Rome as containing more than a million free citizens and about a million slaves who lived on or between the seven hills, some of which had wide gardens and luxurious villas. This was the mega city of the world, filled with noise and entertainment and action. Picture the chariot races and gladiatorial combats at the circus Maximus. Hear the roar of the crowd, a stadium that could accommodate over 150,000 spectators, more than three times the size of Wrigley Field. Rome was a military powerhouse too. 
This city, as Everett Ferguson put it, always seemed to win. People from all over the Mediterranean world eventually flowed into Rome. It was the great melting pot of the ancient world. And now, there were Roman Christians. Christians who, according to one of the earliest Christian authorities, writing soon after the time of Paul, a man known traditionally as Ambrosiaster, had embraced the faith of Christ, although they saw no sign of mighty works nor any of the apostles. And Paul writes to these believers to remind them of the gospel of God that they had heard passed along the travel routes to Rome, A gospel from faith to faith, righteous by faith, this faith being the obedience of faith that leads to new Christ-like life. And he writes to them so that through them this gospel of God could impact all nations and so reach the world. I was intrigued the other day to discover that the army uh, has a new commercial. A few years ago, their tagline was Army of One, focusing on each one as an individual. Today, their tagline is Join the team that makes a difference, focusing on the desire many have today to be a part of something that will change the world for the better. What will make a real difference to our society? What will impact the whole world for Christ in his glory? God's plan is to change the world through us. His plan is that the church would be an agency of change to reach all nations for Christ. Archbishop Temple put it like this, the church is the one institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. The church then is God's Wi-Fi transmitter to the world. Blaise Pascal said this, Being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and misery, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. But God has put on nearly every street corner in America a visible representation of an invisible reality. The people of God gathered around the word of God, proclaiming the gospel of God. We are free samples of the banquet of heaven, constantly saying to our friends and neighbors and colleagues, taste and see that the Lord is good. The ancient Christian bishop Gregory of Nyssa said, we are led to God by desire, drawn to him as if pulled by a rope. Every delight in God becomes kindling for a still more ardent desire. 
And so, you know, we, we relish God in worship together and in that passionate desire we seek more and more of God and with faces heavenly we reflect Christ's glory to a whole world and the nations begin also to long for a taste of the same glory that we experience. Someone says to you, why are those people at college church? Spending time in the Bible when our world is going to hell in a handbasket. You can tell them we are studying God's manual for changing the world. But someone asks, How can you have confidence that this plan of God will actually work? We can have unbreakable confidence in God's purpose to change the world through us because we have the Spirit of Christ in us. And so we have seen first that God's purpose to change the world is through the church of God, which is why Paul is passionately communicating the gospel of God to the church. And now... How can we have unbreakable confidence in this purpose? Because, second, we have the Spirit of Christ in us. Our family is now quite third culture, as uh, it is called. I have lived 16 years in America. My wife's mother is from Canada. All our children were born in America. It gets confusing. The last time we crossed the border going into the UK, I was surprised to discover that despite the fact that both of the parents were at that time carrying a UK passport, because our children were then carrying American passports, we had to wait in the line for non-UK residents. I remember trying to explain to the poor border guard after 10 hours traveling with four children the realities of border law, but to no avail. I've often thought I would enjoy going up to a border guard when we travel to Canada and getting together all the passports and saying, pick a passport, any passport. Many people look at Christianity as a bit like a passport. In some cases, they have dual allegiance, both to the sinful nature and to the spirit. In other cases, they merely carry their passport to heaven, ready should they need it unexpectedly. But in other ways, it does not impact their lives. Paul here is describing Christianity as something that leads to a complete change of location. Those who belong to Christ have the Spirit of Christ. You, he says, turning to the Roman Christians, are not in the flesh or the sinful nature, but are in the Spirit if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And so a Christian is someone who is in the Spirit and in whom the Spirit dwells. This is not like 
a passport that indicates our country of origin and allows us to cross the border into heaven and related to which we may be more or less good citizens. This is like genetics. We are, if we belong to Christ, in the Spirit and the Spirit dwells within us. One scholar says that the word dwell implies settled residence within. So we do not just have a Christian passport. Christ dwells in us. The proof of that being a changed life increasingly like Christ. Now, don't get tripped up by the word flesh. Paul was not using that word here to mean that some Christians are more fleshy or immoral than other Christians. What he means here is a different location, externally and internally. Some people are still in the sinful nature. Others actually are Christians. They are in the Spirit, and the Spirit dwells in them. This is not a matter of holding a Christian passport, but of having Christ in your heart, being changed by Him, and having the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. And Paul is encouraging them, assuming they are in Christ. Like a master teacher, Paul makes this encouragement clear, not by dictionary definitions of particular words in the original, as if asking the reader to scramble to search their Greek dictionary at the back of the Roman church, but by the rhetoric of how he speaks. The flesh cannot submit to God's law. It cannot please God. So this is not someone who is a fleshy Christian. This is someone who is in the flesh, that is, who is not a Christian at all because they cannot please God. But then, switching rhetorically, Paul says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the Spirit, if or if indeed, as is certainly true of you, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You, O Christian, are in the Spirit, not in the flesh. For if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If indeed you do belong to Christ, you are a real Christian. You do have the Spirit of Christ. Now, of course, those who follow Christ long for more and more experiences of His Spirit. But all who follow Christ already have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them. The Spirit dwells in us, at home in us now, not merely a guest. It's like genetics, not like having a passport. A passport is a piece of paper that allows you to cross a border. Genetics is something internal that affects you externally. And if you are in Christ, you have a new Holy Spirit DNA code grafted into you. You now bear the family likeness of Christ. 
you are his. And his spirit is in you. And with that Holy Spirit DNA code, now you are enabled to please God. You can please God now. And as we will see in subsequent weeks, you must. Having the Holy Spirit DNA code means a commitment to become more and more like Christ, to put to death the deeds of the sinful nature, a commitment that before becoming a Christian was simply impossible. No one can please God if they're in the sinful nature. But when you have the new nature, this new Holy Spirit DNA code grafted into you, then you can please God. And if you belong to Christ, then you do have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. One of the greatest leaders of the American church died on December the 7th, 2003. His obituary was published in the New York Times. And in it, Carl Henry was described as the brain of the evangelical movement. And when we think of the work of the Holy Spirit, we're often tempted to consign it to thoughtless, superficial enthusiasm. But in fact, the greatest theologians of the church have often been dubbed theologians of the Spirit. John Calvin was, for instance, who Karl Barth thought to be so massively influential that he said Calvin was something directly down from Himalaya. Carl Henry, the brain of modern Christianity, said this about the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us in an address on reaching the world for Christ. Without the great commissioner, we can do nothing at all. If we take the great commission seriously, we must take the great commissioner just as seriously. He that believeth on me, the works that I do Shall he also do? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. Without me you can do nothing. Henry continued. It is tragic when men who profess to serve Christ in effect forsake the duty of evangelism. It is equally tragic when disciples who proclaim a devotion to the Great Commission try to go it alone. Some try to go it alone by doing everything they can to ignore that spiritual divine interferer altogether, constructing sophisticated but specious reasons as a barrier to the knowledge of God. Atheist Aldous Huxley was candid about the rationalizing that was the real motivation for reasoning away the spiritual. We objected to morality, Huxley said, because it interfered with our sexual freedom. For myself, no doubt, as for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. 
also a proponent of sexual liberation then advances his own agenda under the banner of toleration while refusing to tolerate the freedom of the Spirit. A tactic that even Nietzsche described as being a wily spokesman for his own prejudices which he baptizes truths. The Spirit of God reveals the mystery of marriage as Christ's love for the church, not merely a private contract for mutual pleasure, not even just a building block for social stability, but a pulpit preaching the Christ of God to a watching world as we love with sacrifice and trust with abandon. And a proponent of sexual liberation argues away that mysterious spirit of God. So to undermine the Bible, so to now be liberated to go it alone. And woe betide us if we say different. His freedom extends only as far as being free to do what he wants as he goes it alone. Not the freedom to allow anyone else to disagree But then, there are others who go it alone in more subtle ways. Philosopher C.E.M. Jode, who actually later in life returned to the church, once said this, For God's sake, don't touch the church of England. It is the only thing that stands between us and Christianity. Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw similarly said, Christianity might be a good thing if anyone ever tried it. And Danish theologian Kierkegaard was even more blunt. He said, millions of Christians down the centuries have succeeded in making Christianity the exact opposite of what it is in the New Testament. He went on to say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and I only regret it does not exist. Oh yeah, I'm afraid none of us even the most godly among us can honestly say they are without error in this regard. The great Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane was once praised for his godliness. Madam, he said in reply, if you could see in my heart, you would spit in my face. We cannot go it alone. And praise be to God. We need not go it alone. The Spirit of Christ dwells with us. If indeed we belong to Christ. Will you this moment join with Christ? Will you take the time 
to abide in Christ. Will you stop doing something good so you can have the space in your schedule for someone better? Will you stop being the Lone Ranger and start being a branch connected to the vine, feasting on the sap of the word and prayer and community of the church? If you will, you will have the Spirit of Christ dwell in you. And such people can have unbreakable confidence in God's purpose to change the world through them because they have the very Spirit of Christ in them. What do you think of when you think of church? I think of that church in Baku. I think of the vision that comes from this manual to change the world. Will you embrace that vision? The first step is to stop reasoning away God and instead receive Christ personally. You know, I can give you arguments, but when it really comes down to it, is your argument truly with him? The Spirit of God is not definable ultimately by our finite mind, but is the wisdom of God blowing where he wills. Will you receive him with all humility for the wonder of being a part of God's good plan to impact the whole world? And then now part of the people with the spirit of Christ indwelling, able to please God and part of his mission, plug into the Wi-Fi and transmit the message to those around. You may have a marriage that needs some work to live out that vision. You may have a Bible that could do with some attention to tune in to the vision. You may have resources that you could invest in the vision. October the 21st, 2015, just this week, was the day that the DeLorean car from Back to the Future was meant to have landed in the future. Their vision of the future included flying cars, which I am very disappointed to have discovered do not yet exist. But in this vision, for which Paul wrote Romans, and for which Christ gave 
his blood. We can have unbreakable confidence in God's purpose to change the world through us because we have the Spirit of Christ in us. Would you pray with me? O Lord of the church, we pray for our renewing. Fire of the Spirit, burn for our enduing. Wind of the Spirit, fan the living flame. Lord, I pray that you would encourage those here this morning who feel despondent. Would you give them fresh bravery to face the challenges this week? Would you help them to see that the very worst things that are going on in their lives are all part of your sovereign purpose and none of them can take away from the truth that the Spirit of Christ dwells in them. Would you help them to hear your encouragement that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world? Lord, would you also soften the hearts of the hard-hearted? Would you give us humility to receive from you with joy and so find fresh excitement in the gifts of other people, the contribution of others, And discover in those people we find most annoying your ministry to us. And Lord, we especially wish to pray for those who are advancing arguments against you when in the deepest recesses of their minds truly they long to discover you. Would you soften their hearts too? And so together with us, Lord, use us for your glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.